Hello, my fellow project managers. Welcome to the PMP Exam Radio Show. It's been a while that we spoke. I hope you're doing well. It's just been crazily busy. I just got off a boot camp that I have every Sunday. It's called the PMP Exam Immersion. And we just had our session for today. And it occurred to me that I haven't given you a test in a while. I haven't given you an on-the-spot test. So you walked right into it. It's an on-the-spot test. Here are some questions for you. As a project manager, you're working on a traditional project and you just finished with the project management plan. What should you work on next in that same knowledge area? Three, two, and one. (laughs) Now, you're in integration. Did you know that? Did you know that what you should do next in integration is direct and manage project work? Well, if you didn't know, now you know. Okay, let's move on. Give me some examples of intangible value on a project. Just give me some examples. Got any ideas? Okay. So, some examples of intangible value are things like Goodwill, brand recognition, reputation, things such as that, right? Now, take a look at page 8 in your 6th edition. Yes, I still refer to it because the 7th could be a lot better. And it doesn't have a lot of what the 6th does. Actually, let's go to page 7. Examples of intangible value are goodwill, brand recognition, public benefit, trademark, strategic alignment, and reputation. All right, your next question. These are kind of open-ended questions. You're a project manager on an agile project. You've been asked to explain the concept of cadence. Explain what cadence means. What is cadence? All right. So if when I asked you to define cadence, you thought of a rhythm. If you thought of the duration or time box around certain events, then you're right. So cadence in the world of Agile is really more about the duration or time boxing of certain events, such as your sprint. You could also talk about cadence when it comes to things like release and so on. All right. But sprints are typically what we mean first when we talk about cadence. You can refer to it as a pulse, if you will. It's a flow in which work gets done and which stuff gets delivered. Very good. Can you explain to me what a product owner is? Who a product owner is on a project? Product owner. Okay, so when I think about product owner, I think about a role, right? It's a role on a scrum team. And I think about a role of the product owner as the chief value officer. Some people say these are accountabilities, right? In scrum, you could say accountabilities, you could call them roles. The bottom line is the product owner is that person that is accountable 
for maximizing value of the product resulting from the work of the scrum team now if you haven't read the scrum guide go on down to scrumguides.org read it it's a really cool read so i'm hoping that you've been going through back issues you know there's a lot of back episodes of all of this stuff we talk about if you haven't listened to the july october september november all those episodes from 2021 you need to because you know it doesn't grow old it doesn't get stale especially since it's all based on the current exam so if i were you i would go back to those older episodes and i would listen to them to kind of understand all that i've talked about there business uh process people and so on so in today's episode i'm going to take you back to some of the old stuff we talked about just so that you can remember them and if you actually haven't gone back this is kind of like going back in that journey all right so what else is happening in your world it's always a pleasure to hear from you look if you haven't left me a message i want you to go on down to the pmradio.org site and when you go to pmradio.org you will be able to leave me a message pmradio.org just go on down there. It'll take you to the anchor.fm page and just hit message, right? It's down the, on the right. I would love to hear from you. Leave me a voice message if you can. And if you can't leave me a voice message, at least just leave me a written message. One of those. But if you click message, you can actually leave me a voice message. And you know what? I'm going to answer your question. I'm going to play it in one of our subsequent episodes. It's going to be a win for you and for, for me. I want to hear from all of you, wherever you are in the world. So many of you tune into this podcast from India, from, from various parts of Asia, to, to, to mention the entire continent. Some of you are in Africa. Some of you are in Europe. Some of you are right here in America. I want to hear from all of you, wherever you are in the world. Okay? All continents. In fact, I believe that all continents... I have people listening from North America, Europe, Africa. I'm not sure about Antarctica. Can you surprise me if you're out there in Antarctica? Anywhere else I haven't mentioned. Or you're out somewhere in the ocean that I haven't mentioned. Why don't you do me a favor? Drop me a comment. I'd like to know. I know I've got friends in South America. All right. So I look forward to hearing from you. Let's go into some back episodes. And while we're at that, leave me a message, will you? Hello, my awesome project managers. How you doing? It's your buddy Phil here, project management training coach. I hope you're doing well. Today is the 18th of September and it's coming down to the wire. Those of you who have planned to get certified by Q3, you've got about 12 days left and you absolutely can do it. That is the reason why I put these clips out just to inspire you and to get you to ship shape for your exam. Today, I heard from one of our listeners who sent a message from YouTube. So, we're going to read the message that we got from one of our friends, Andy. Andy, a huge shout out to you and congrats on your recent success. Andy says, Hi Phil, I studied hard for six months. The exam centers canceled my exam booking several times due to COVID, then lost the momentum, and then finally able to put a date of my exam and confirmed by the exam center only to realize that the syllabus of the exam had changed plus agile and have no idea 
what kind of new creature this is. Almost shot myself because of this with only four weeks to go before the exam and six weeks before the exam, one year expiration date. That's crazy. So it really came down to the wire for Andy. Andy says, then I found this video. So Andy's talking about the clip that I put out called Key Agile Mindset. And you'll find that whether you're watching or listening, uh, whether you're listening on Spotify or you're listening on any of the other platforms, um, iTunes, Google, um, Podcast Addict, you'll find it on there. But it's about the Key Agile Mindset. So Andy says, I found this video, then I subscribed to your channel and watched all of them, literally all of them, every day for four weeks while skimming the PMBOK guide, while watching your video, listening to your Spotify and YouTube channel while driving to the office and groceries and all that. And today, I am PMP certified. Seriously, while reading the exam questions this morning, somehow, I can hear your voice your voice reading the questions for me along with the answers, my friend, LOL. Sometimes I could hear your voice as well while sleeping, even until now. Ha ha. So thank you. Your channel is underrated and deserves much more. Well, thank you, Andy Jack. I appreciate that. And I wish you all the very best now that you're PMP. Go forth and help someone else get certified. Point them to this channel. Point them to this podcast. Same for all my other friends getting ready for the exam. You absolutely can do it, and I wish you all the best. Now, you do know that we have three domains in this PMP exam content outline. We have one more domain to cover today, and that domain is the business domain. So we're going to talk about the business domain, but you know what we're going to do as usual. We are going to take a look at the PMP exam content outline from an agile and hybrid lens. It's one thing to read the content outline, just thinking about the 49 processes, but I always want you to go a step further and to read the content outline and think about the agile and hybrid perspective. All right. So in the PMP exam content outline, we have people process business. The previous episodes, we covered people and we covered process. Today, we are covering business. So let's get down to business. Open up the PMP exam content outline. And why don't you follow me to page 10? It's the business environment. The business environment is all about business related ideas and how those relate to projects. Let's go over this really quick because there are only four. But the thought and the thinking for this needs to be organizational level, program level, portfolio level, external environment level, and how that affects your projects, your organization, programs, portfolios, that big think. And that's why the PMI have made this 8% because they know that in the publications they have, they actually didn't do a splendid job of documenting this clearly. And that's why those of you who are reading for the exam, you find yourself asking the question, where can I find this? Where can I find that? And the answer, you don't get. What you hear is crickets <laughs> because it's hard to find this content, but I'll break it down for you. So let's go straight to the first task. It reads, plan and manage 
project compliance. So when you talk about compliance to begin with, how can we define it? Think about compliance like this. Compliance means adhering to a regulation, a law, a rule, a policy, a standard, a specification. And when we talk about this in business, compliance is linked to corporate governance. What is governance? Governance is the framework within which authority is exercised. It's the framework in which rules, regulations, and practices are upheld in the firm. So it's very firm level driven. Going a step further into the content outline, still in task one, it reads, plan and manage project compliance. First enabler, confirm project compliance requirements. So we're talking about requirements for security. This could be physical security, it could be data security, it could be health and safety, it could be regulatory compliance. So all those compliance requirements need to be identified. And guess what? In the world of predictive, we often say the project manager should identify these and they have the accountability and the responsibility for this. But you know the truth? From a hybrid and agile perspective, we need to adopt a decentralized responsibility accountability mindset. See, that's how it works in the world of agile. So it's not just one person's responsibility. In the world of agile, it's everyone's responsibility. Are there some individuals that may have an advantage of knowing more about these compliance clauses? Of course, but it's everyone's accountability and responsibility at the team level when we talk about this from an agile perspective. We also have an enabler that says classify compliance categories, and then we have one that states determine potential threats to compliance. So think about it. Why would you classify compliance categories? Well, experience has shown that if you have categories for these compliance clauses and variables, it is easier for you to identify them, easier for you to take an account of each one. So classify the categories and determine threats to compliance. In other words, what are the risks that you would be out of compliance? And also, be honest, does it make more sense to perhaps not be in compliance? Taking a look at a risk perspective and a risk response perspective, you know, one of the PMI principles, they say, optimize risk responses, choose the adequate risk response. Well, some organizations choose to not be in compliance. I'll give you a simple example. I was watching a soccer player today do this big old celebration and ripped off his shirt and he knew he was going to be carded. He was not in compliance, but he decided to take the risk of being out of compliance to celebrate the goal. Now, sometimes in business, you choose to not be in compliance because the cost of being in compliance is too much. You'd rather pay the penalty than go through all these hoops and jumps and paperwork, you see. So that's another mindset that you can think about. When does it make sense to maybe not be in compliance? Okay, now this is all businessy stuff, and that's why it sounds kind of weird. Determine potential threats to compliance and then use methods to support compliance. 
be intentional about your compliance, and then determine the necessary approach and action to address compliance needs. Think about how you need to act, steps you need to take, checkboxes you need to tick to address compliance needs from all perspectives, be it health, safety, risk, legal, and so on. And the last enabler simply reads, measure the extent to which the project is in compliance. So take stock of your levels of compliance all throughout. Don't wait till you are audited by an external auditor for SOX compliance or OSHA regulations and how well you're meeting those or the Americans with Disability Act or something to that effect. These are all regulatory law standards that we encounter in the world of business, security standards and so on. Okay? So that is the first task. Now, to round up this first task, how do you tackle these things from a pragmatic project perspective? Who is doing this? Is this part of the project? You bet it is part of the project. And that's why the mindset needs to be identify what needs to be done and then make this part of your project tasks, part of what has to be done on the project at some time by the team, by someone in some capacity or the other, and as a whole. In the world of Agile, when we think about compliance, many a time these compliance activities, they get put into the backlog because they are part of what we genuinely look at as requirements. You know, there's a difference between a user story that is a nice to have, that's a request, versus a compliance item. And those compliance items, if they're part of what you're coding or what you're developing, whether in the world of IT or in the world of engineering or in the world of services, you want to make sure those compliance aspects are in there. Whether it's food service, you're dealing with the FDA, you better make sure you get all your ducks in a row. You get what I'm saying? That's the mindset. It could be anything. I know a lot of times when we look at agile and hybrid stuff, there's a tendency to want to think IT, but no, no, no. Don't just think IT. Think wider than IT. Think gaming. Think medical industry. Um, think um, food. FDA, stuff like that. All right, let's move on to task two. Task two is evaluate and deliver project benefits and value. The summary is this. When you are taking on a project, always ask the question, what is the benefit? What is the definite chief aim? Why are we doing this? What value are we looking to give to the customer? So we want to investigate, first of all, that benefits are identified not that benefits are realized, but that you identify them. There's a very robust section in the PMBOK Guide 6th edition on page 33 forward that talks about benefits. And there's a brilliant page 7 in the 6th edition that really gives you examples of tangible benefits, intangible benefits. Highly advise you to go read that up so that you understand what we mean by benefits. 
And what we mean by value, because it says evaluate and deliver project benefits and value. So value, when we say something has value, we're talking about the net quantifiable benefits that a customer or stakeholder realizes. If the customer is getting benefits, they are getting value because value is the net quantifiable benefits that a customer realizes. So you want to identify that these benefits are identified, right, first of all, and then document agreement on ownership for ongoing benefit realization. In other words, who's going to own these benefits? Who's the benefits owner? This is all talked about in the PMBOK Guide 6th edition, page 33. The benefits management plan is really the document they're alluding to. Some people just call it a benefits plan. But that's where you begin the journey. Identify the benefits, know who the benefits owner is, get specific, right? Get quantitative, get qualitative, get specific. Number three says verify a measurement system is in place to track benefits. In other words, make sure you know what you're measuring. Are you measuring ROI? Are you measuring MPV? What exactly are you measuring? Fourth one is evaluate delivery options to demonstrate value. Ask the question, how are we going to deliver? Are we going to deliver incrementally? Are we going to do it a one-time thing? Pretty much, is this incremental or is this iterative or is it predictive? There are many questions you can ask, but you're either delivering one time or you're delivering multiple times. Some projects you absolutely can do that and other projects you can't, but... Some projects where you can't deliver multiple times, you can think about an incremental validation of the sub-deliverables, even though you can't deliver a sub-deliverable on some projects all on their own. They just won't work. There's no point. But you can have those incremental milestones. And you know what value you're getting? You're getting value from customer feedback. In the world of Agile, we call this MVP, the minimum viable product. What is a minimum amount of product you need to show a customer? Or what is the minimum thing you need to do? MVP doesn't have to be a product, as I've said many a time. It could actually be a discussion. But the thing about MVP, you want to get feedback to make sure you're building the right stuff. And once you know what to build, then you know how to deliver it as you think more critically and introspectively. So evaluate the delivery options to demonstrate value when you know that this is definitely going to deliver value. Ask, okay, how should we deliver it? Frequent, smaller increments? Maybe larger chunks? Maybe a one-time thing? All right. Final one here for task two is appraise stakeholders of value gain progress. In other words, let your stakeholders know the value that has been delivered over successive time periods. For some projects, there's no value until you're done. Other projects, you begin realizing value along the way. And some projects, you deliver a product and it takes another six months, one year before you realize any value from it. But it's good to know what you're dealing with. Let's go to task three. Evaluate and address external business environment changes for impact on scope. Think about that. External business environment changes. Let's talk about the crazy pandemic. When COVID hit, a lot of organizations had to do just that. They had to evaluate and address the business environment changes because no longer could 
their teams go into work. No longer could they sustain work in person. It had to be done by small teams coming on different shifts. It had to be done for some companies like training companies. They had to change how they were doing stuff. And this is all they're saying in task three. Constantly, as a good project manager, evaluate external business environment changes for the impact on scope. If the scope needs to change, change it. So you were thinking of building this big old 10-story structure to house your team, and then COVID hit. And you got 1,000 workers who don't need to be in the office, but you were about to fork out 50 million on a new building, and it's going to two years, and you see what I'm saying? This is when we need to think in an agile fashion, because maybe that's not the best use of your resources at this time. You see, so evaluate and deliver project benefits and value. And then when you know what value you're thinking about, constantly evaluate and address external business environment changes for impact on scope, because you may not be able to realize that value, those benefits of housing your team in this new structure, because the environment has changed. And that's a pretty drastic example. But on every project, they are examples of how the external environment could affect the project scope. So the idea is this, if you've thought about this from an agile perspective, as you prepared for the exam, you might have thought about backlog refinement. Well, that's part of it. Backlog refinement is when the product owner is constantly, not only in a backlog refinement ceremony, but it's constantly looking at the environment and asking the question, what has changed? How should I reprioritize with the team this product backlog? What needs to go? What can stay? Perhaps we can cut off 50% of those product backlog items. We don't need them anymore. That's the way you need to be thinking. Being agile. All right, so assess and prioritize the impact on project scope, backlog, based on changes in the external business environment, and then recommend options for scope or backlog changes, pretty much what I said. Based on the business environment, you may need to make changes to the product backlog, schedule changes, cost changes, and then continually review external business environment for impacts on project scope, the backlog. It's a constant thing. Constantly ask, what is changing? New technology has arrived. Oh, well, we know that our customers aren't going to want what we're building because there's a new technology. You know, case in point, when 3D printing came on the scene, there were a lot of companies that realized they couldn't keep doing what they were doing at the rate they were doing. A lot of the projects had to change. They had to realize that it was a cheaper, more efficient way of doing things. 3D printing. Just as an example, let's go to number four. Number four is support organizational change. And that's big. We're not talking about project change or program change or portfolio change. No, this is far-reaching, higher-level change, organizational change. And the first enabler is assess organizational culture. Why? Because based on culture, you know how people will react to change. You know how people will be when you announce a change is coming. Some firms are just change averse. Some firms, they're deeply rooted 
in tradition and they just find a hard time changing to anything. So assess your organizational culture and understand how best to deliver your project outcomes and outputs so that it will be taken in a productive manner. Some projects try to do too much too soon. They haven't assessed the organization's culture. And they are harming the organization by doing too much too quick. You know, in the Pembroke Guide 7th edition, it reads something to the effect of people having change fatigue because you're trying to do too much change too quick. Don't do it, is pretty much what PMI is saying. The Pembroke Guide 7th edition actually takes change to a pretty high level. And I'm not talking about summary level. No, I mean, they really went pedal to metal in talking about various change models. We talk about the William Bridges transition model. We talk about the ADCAR model. We talk about the John Carter's model and others, including PMI's FIPIMS, um, FPIMS uh, model. I call it a FIPIMS model. But there's a lot of talk about that. I'm not telling you this because I'm saying these models are going to appear on the exam. No, I'm trying to sensitize you to how vast organizational change is. The ADCAR model is a brilliant addition and it sensitizes you to what people go through and how you should respond as a professional. And the William Bridges transition model, it just helps you see how people go through peaks and valleys of emotions, some pretty rough emotions and when you understand what people are going through as you try to introduce change that should prompt you to have sense making sessions to be empathetic towards people as they go through change in an organization so the final task in business is all about supporting organizational change, assess the organization's culture, evaluate the impact of the organizational change to your project, and determine required actions. So how does change happening in the firm as a whole affect my project? And the last enabler is another question. How does my project impact the organization? In other words, evaluate the impact of your project to your organization and determine required actions. What needs to be done? What needs to be done to make sure that this change is absorbed the best way possible, is conveyed the best way possible? These are the ideas behind this one, you know, and we could go into things like empathy and sense-making sessions and bringing the organization along, doing all the right people stuff. And trust me, you will be tested on change management at the project level and at the organizational level on your exam. You can expect those. So when we talk about change in process, it's different, right? We've gone over that before. Uh, talking about change on the process level, it's all about you know artifacts and deliverables and process and stuff. But task four in the business environment is at a high level. It's organizational change and you want to be proficient with that thinking and you should know what to expect. In other words, it's all in the outline. Read it.
Okay, my friend. So we're done talking about the business environment. We've talked about plan and manage project compliance. We've talked about evaluate and deliver project benefits and value. Evaluate and address external business environment changes for impact on scope and support organizational change. And I know I went through it really quick. We actually could break this down for the next four hours. All right. So I still want you to go read up some of this stuff that I mentioned. Go read up page 33 and uh, the sixth edition, look at page seven, um, open up your agile practice guide, just mine for some information regarding uh, this along these lines and put on your organizational change thinking cap when you get into the exam. All right. I hope this has been of help to you. Don't forget to hit like if you can. If you're watching this on YouTube, share with your friends, please subscribe, please. If you're enjoying it, I want you to give it a thumbs up. I want you to give it a rave review and I wish you all the very best on your exam. You take care and I will speak to you again very soon. Bye for now. Now, just a few more questions. You're working on a project with a high frequency of delivery and a high degree of change. Which approach should you use to deliver this project? Is it predictive, incremental, agile, or iterative? Three, two, one. The answer is agile. Agile works best when you have a high frequency of delivery and a high degree of change. Next question. You're working on a project with a high frequency of delivery and a low degree of change. Which approach should you use? Is it predictive, incremental, agile, or iterative? Three, two, one. If you are using a high frequency of delivery and a low degree of change, the best option is incremental. Refer to figure 3-1 in the Agile Practice Guide. This is on page 19. Next question. On your project, you have a high frequency of delivery and a high degree of change. Which approach should you use? Is it A, plan-driven? Is it B, change-driven? Is it C, iterative? Three, two, one. The answer is change-driven because that's agile as well. Bear in mind that agile is known as change-driven and adaptive as well. Next question. You're working a project where there is a high degree of change and a low frequency of delivery. Which approach should you use for this project? Predictive? Is it incremental? Is it agile? Or is it iterative? Three, two, one. If you are working a project with a high degree of change and a low frequency of delivery, that needs to be iterative. Again, figure 3-1, page 19. Here is your final question. You're working a project which has a low frequency of delivery, a low degree of change as well. Which of the four approaches should you use? Is it plan-driven? Is it change-driven? Is it incremental? Or is it iterative?
Three, two, one. The answer is plan-driven. Okay, now we are done with very specific agile content. I will ask you two final questions that cut across predictive and agile. On a predictive project, which element is fixed? Scope, schedule, or cost? Hit the pause button if you need more time. Three, two, one. On a predictive project, the element that is fixed is scope. Next question. On an agile project, which of the following elements is not fixed? Is it schedule? Is it cost? Is it scope? Three, two, one. On an agile project, the element that is not fixed is scope. Scope is flexible. Next question. On an agile project, which of these elements is fixed? Is it A, scope, B, schedule, C, cost, or D, quality? Three, two, one. That was a somewhat trick question because two of the options are correct. The answer I was looking for is schedule and cost. In the world of Agile, we fix those parameters. We have a stable team. We have a team. We understand the cost. We have a time box, a sprint, and whatever we can fit within the sprint, we do. The sprint is fixed. That's the time box. The team is fixed. Could more people join the team? Absolutely. But we know what we are working with cost-wise and schedule-wise. Those are the fixed elements in the world of Agile. Final question. On a predictive project, which elements are not fixed? Three, two, and one. The elements that are not fixed are schedule. The elements that are not fixed are schedule and cost. And that concludes our review for today. Thank you very much. I hope this helps you. If you are struggling with your PMP prep and you're looking for a course to boot you into shape, you need to go on down to projectmanagementmasterclass.com. That is projectmanagementmasterclass.com. In the next few days this weekend, starting on the 30th of October, this will be our final masterclass for 2021. This is your final chance in 2021 to join me for four weeks 
combing through all of the content for the PMP exam. I look forward to seeing you. Take care and bye for now. I'm scared of the PMP exam. It's going to hurt me. Don't be ridiculous, boy. The exam can't hurt you if you've prepared well for it. But I've heard horrible things from other people who've taken the test. Well, what those people didn't tell you is they didn't prepare in the best way possible. They didn't consult with your friend Phil at Crazy on Meeting. My advice to you before the exam is to go on down to the website, crazyon.com, P-R-A-I-Z-I-O-N.com. Do you mean Z-I-O-N? <laughs> yes, Z-I-O-N, if you pronounce Z as Z. Go on down to praiseon.com. When I first of all started learning Agile, there were a lot of misconceptions that I had. I was actually confused about the difference between Agile and Scrum. I really wasn't able to laser focus and understand what exactly it was and best practices and how to tailor the implementation of this whole Agile mindset. I was unable to clearly delineate fact from fiction. And I know many others, like me, may be struggling with that. So today, we're going to be taking a look at 10 common misconceptions in the world of Agile. Let's take them down one by one. Number one, thinking Agile is a methodology or framework. Agile is not a methodology and it's not a framework. Rather, Agile is a mindset and the best place to get started to understand what exactly I mean by saying it's a mindset is none other than the website known as agilemanifesto.org. So let's go to agilemanifesto.org and I'm going to show you really quick what exactly Agile is, taking a look at the values and the principles in the manifesto. So in the Agile manifesto for software development, by the way, software can be replaced with products because a lot of companies use Agile these days, not just software anymore. So it reads, we are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do it. Through this work, we have come to value individuals and interactions over processes and tools. In other words, value people more than processes and tools. Working software over comprehensive documentation. But I would like to replace that word software to make it more robust and more applicable to a number of industries. Let's take out the word software and let's replace that word with the word product. So we're going to think of this as being working product over comprehensive documentation. In other words, we value a working deliverable, a working item over lots of documentation. 
without a working product. A working product comes first. Now, I want you to take note, it's not saying instead of, it said over. So individuals and interactions over processes and tools, we value that. We value working product. We value customer collaboration over contract negotiation. And we value being able to respond to change over following a plan. Just take a look at the likes of Blockbuster. Take a look at the likes of Kodak, Toys R Us, TM Lewin. It's an endless list of individuals and companies that will tell you they value being able to respond to change. This crazy pandemic, being able to respond to the marketplace conditions and things such as that. We value that over following a plan. That's really what that value is saying. So agile is this mindset, my friends. It's this mindset. If you scroll down and you click on 12 principles, you can read through the 12 principles, and I've covered them quite a lot on this channel. But let's focus on number one. Our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable, again, replace the word software with product. So when you boil it down, the mindset is one of customer focus. It's one of customer, I call it hyper-focus. Because a lot of times when you're in the world of traditional or predictive and you hear some of these vendors or contractors talking about change orders and jubilating, oh, that's another one. That's that boat I was waiting to get. That change order is going to help me. Instead of focusing on the customer and collaborating to minimize cost, in some instances, there's a bad mindset of wanting to make change as difficult as possible. But that shouldn't be a mindset. You see what I'm saying? Mindset, agile is a mindset. All right, let's jump back into it really quickly. The next one says, agile Puritan mindset. Agile must be used alone. Someone says only agile should be used. It cannot be mixed with anything else. Don't blend agile thinking with anything else. It won't work. That's a myopic mindset. That's a myopic view. Agile can be used with predictive methods. Agile can be used with predictive ideas. However, we should do it smartly. We should tailor. We should combine. And in cases where we shouldn't, we should also be able to identify, oh, this is, this is going to be purely predictive. Or oh, this is going to be purely agile. But agile should not necessarily always be used alone. Some people think it's either agile or nothing, and that's a bad mindset. That is not being agile in and of itself, because agile is about being able to adapt as necessary. Number three, some folks think using a daily scrum as a practice means you're being agile. That is a misconception. You could have a daily scrum and you could have a bad mindset, one of coercion, one of beating the team over the head, one of carrot and sticks, one of draconian rule. So just because you are naming some of your practices with agile names does not mean you are being agile. Some people are doing things in name only that sound agile, but they're not truly agile in their mindset. We don't want to be like that. Number four, 
The Scrum Master is like a project manager. I've heard this over and over again. People thinking, oh, Scrum, when I get into it, I'm a project manager. I'll just switch. I just call myself a Scrum Master and off I go. No. Actually, in the world of Scrum, in particular as a framework, there is no role called project manager. And it's for a reason. The Scrum Master is not like a project manager. The Scrum Master could be likened to a servant leader, someone who serves the team, someone who asks the question, how can I help you to remove these obstacles or these impediments or these roadblocks? So the Scrum Master is that individual who coaches the team to excellence in Scrum practices to do it well. Is that person who is a diversion shield for when they're distractions Someone who is a roadblock remover. That's the scrum master. Someone who is whatever the team needs. Could be the team's shrink. If they're going crazy and need to vent, that's okay. Scrum master is there. Vent to the scrum master. If the scrum master needs to be the pizza boy or girl, then so be it. They will go out and get that pizza for the team. Feed the team. Help the team. Nurture the team. And create that environment in which the team can function to the best of their ability. That's what the Scrum Master is. So when we think about Scrum Master, it's important that we don't confuse this with a project manager. A project manager is a central figure. There's centralized leadership and centralized decision-making around the project manager. The Scrum Master, not so much. Instead, we like a dispersed approach, decentralized decision-making, decentralized leadership. Number five, another huge misconception is thinking of scaling into a big team of 10, 12, 20, 30. Well, since it works so well, let's just make it as big as ever. And that is a misconception because the first thing we want to do if we want to maximize our efforts is to descale. Could we descale, bring down the scope, reduce it, spread it out? That needs to be one line of thinking. A second line of thinking could be thinking about scaling using multiple teams, one backlog. Multiple teams, one backlog. Difference between multiple teams, one backlog versus multiple backlogs, one team. That's going to make the team crazy. Now, if you have multiple teams, there are rules and guidelines and ideas to follow. And the simplest of them is a scrum of scrums, where a representative of each team meets at higher levels and higher levels to reduce the number of meetings. So look at scrum of scrums, especially if you have documentation such as the Agile Practice Guide, the Agile Alliance partnered with the PMI to write it, There's a good definition of the scrum of scrums in there. Recommend reading it. But a lot of times people find themselves scaling into a huge team and then it no longer is agile. It becomes chaos. Number six, there's a misconception that you don't do any documentation in agile. And that's a big fat lie. Nothing is further from the truth. In the world of agile, Documentation is one of the things that we require on some projects. 
especially when it's necessary. There's something we call the definition of done. And for many teams, the definition of done includes sufficient documentation. Now, note the word sufficient. We're not going overboard with documentation for being busy. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just barely enough. What is just required, but not going overboard. There's a difference. So when someone says you don't do documentation in Agile, that's a big lie. Number seven, Scrum and Agile are the same thing. Scrum is a framework that is lightweight and used to solve complex problems with an Agile mindset. Agile is the mindset that enables great Scrum practice. They are not the same thing. I just showed you the Agile Manifesto. Scrum is a framework. And the Scrum framework is based on the configuration of three, five, three. There are three roles. There are five ceremonies that are formally recognized. There is one that is an informal ceremony. And there are three artifacts. So before going any further, since we have mentioned it quite a bit today, let's take a look at what exactly Scrum is. The 353 configuration. So the three roles are the product owner, the Scrum master, and the team. The three artifacts are the product backlog, the sprint backlog, and the increment. Some people refer to it as the potentially shippable increment. And the five ceremonies are sprint planning, the sprint itself, daily scrum, the sprint review, and the sprint retrospective. Now let's put a picture around what we have discussed so far. It starts off with the customer knowing that they need something. The customer has a mouthpiece known as the product owner. And the product owner works on putting all that the customers want into a product backlog. Now, wants and needs are different. Just because it's in the backlog doesn't mean it is required. So there's a difference. So we use the concept of user stories to create the product backlog. The product owner meets with the team and they meet in a ceremony known as sprint planning. Sprint planning is where the sprint backlog, which is a subsection of the product backlog, gets put together. The team decides what they're going to do within the sprint. The sprint in the world of Scrum, we look at it as an iteration of not more than four weeks. There's a daily Scrum, and I've talked about the daily Scrum already. The daily Scrum helps move the team forward. It is not a status meeting. It's a planning meeting. It's a meeting where we advance. It's a meeting where we identify problems. And outside of the daily Scrum, those meetings help us solve the problems. Outside of the daily Scrum, we could have smaller meetings. In the middle of the sprint, there will be backlog refinement to prime the backlog to better understand the requests and to get them to what we call a ready state. The increment at the end of the sprint will be derived. We will have a sprint review ceremony where we obtain feedback from the customer about the increment. 
We also work with the customer to identify if additional user stories are generated, could be used, could be put into the product backlog. But more than anything else, we want feedback. This is a good time to build trust with the stakeholders. Ultimately, we'll have a retrospective, and it's very different from our lessons learned in that in a retrospective, we look for one or two items, and those items are items of improvement. We make them smart goals, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-framed, and we endeavor to do these things in the next sprint if possible. It's not a must, but it's good practice. And this is a difference between a lessons learned and a retrospective. A lessons learned, you could go away without any actions for whatever next cycle you're working on, but in the retrospective, we look to improve. So we have these items, they're put back into the sprint backlog for the next sprint, and we improve. So Scrum versus Agile, you've seen. Agile is a mindset. The Agile manifesto I showed you in the beginning, Scrum is a framework I just showed you. Number eight, comparing Agile to Waterfall and dismissing it entirely. Some folks compare Agile to Waterfall as if it's apples to apples. No, it's not. Waterfall, if you wanted to call it Waterfall Software Development, yes, it has its place. Predictive project management has its place where we're dealing with enormous risk, potential loss of life, catastrophic outcomes, if we do things the wrong way. Agile is not used for projects like that. So it makes sense to understand that predictive project management coupled with as many good agile practices baked in makes sense. So comparing agile to waterfall and saying, well, forget about waterfall, forget about predictive project management, it's hopeless. That is a myopic mindset. And again, that is not being agile in and of itself because agile always looks for the best mousetrap, best suited for the work. So a hybrid model could be the best. Think about that. Number nine, there's no planning in agile. I cannot count how many times people have said that. Oh, those agile people, they're just cowboys cruising down the freeway, doing nothing, doing ad hoc random work. Again, nothing is further from the truth. You see, in the world of Agile, we actually plan a whole lot more than many folks do in the world of predictive, believe it or not. And I'm going to show you very quickly the different layers at which we plan. So real super quick here, we plan at the strategy level. We get an overarching strategy. We plan at the portfolio level and at the product level and at the release level. Think about that for a second. We have visioning, chartering, product roadmaps, release plans. We plan down to the iteration level and iteration plan. And not just that, the daily scrum is a planning event. We plan down to the day. So anyone saying, oh, in the world of Agile, there's cowboys. They don't plan. That's a big fat lie. Number 10, using velocity to judge and penalize the team. That is a cardinal sin in the world of Agile. Don't punish the team. Don't use velocity to be a draconian leader or ruler. Oh my goodness, that one definitely got me. Don't penalize the team, period. Secondly, definitely don't use velocity 
as a yardstick to compare team A and team B. That is a huge no-no. Now, there's reasons why velocity fluctuates. It could be capacity issues. It could be you're dealing with a copious flow of work. Maybe Scrum is not the thing for you. Maybe it's Kanban. Maybe it's DevOps. But using velocity for any reason to penalize a team is a cardinal sin. Don't do it. Instead, look to solve problems. Believe you hired adults and work with the team to help them solve their own problems. And then you get better ownership and better results. Research has shown that the most lasting results, it comes from self-organizing teams. The best architectures, requirements, and designs comes from a self-organizing team. So don't judge the team using velocity. Instead, take a look at history, use empirical data, and let them solve their own problems. Number 11, this is a huge, huge problem in many companies. Indiscriminately large lumbering scaling techniques. I call them wolf in sheep's clothing scaling techniques. Because even though it's called an agile scaling technique, you take a look under the hood and you see a nightmare, a nightmare of various potpourri pieces of confusion threaded together under the auspices of being agile. And nothing is further from the truth. My advice to you is first try to descale and use simple approaches at first, like a scrum of scrums. I would also advise you to do this. I know a lot of folks think Ken and Jeff have done their bit and they should move out of the way. And that's a bad mindset. What am I talking about? The co-creators of Scrum. They both have different takes on scaling. And I would advise that you study what they have had to say about scaling. I'm not asking you to go take any certifications of theirs. I am not affiliated with any of the organizations, but common sense suggests if you want to scale what someone produced, find out their take on it. So I encourage you to take a look at Scrum Inc. Take a look at scrum.org. And on the side of scrum.org, take a look at the Nexus guide. Actually, look for my video. I'm going to endeavor to put it in the comments below. Look for my video where I cover the Nexus guide. Because Ken's company has a certification called the SPS, Scale Professional Scrum, that's based on the Nexus guide. I would highly advise you to read it and understand that it doesn't have to be complex and crazy to scale Scrum. It doesn't have to be. All right? So take a look at that. Read it, do some studying, and understand, I definitely do not want you to fall into this trap of indiscriminately large, lumbering, blumbering scaling techniques. That shouldn't even be called agile. They should be called something else. If you've been around long enough, you know what I'm talking about. Don't fall into the trap of indiscriminate scaling. Using these wolf in sheep's clothing techniques. Finally, agile in name only. There's some companies who say, oh, I see what agile is. It's just the same thing we do. We'll call our lessons learned a retrospective. 
We'll call a status meeting a daily scrum. We'll call a Gantt chart a roadmap. <laughs> no, but it, it will amaze you that there are some organizations that do that. They are agile in name only. It's a huge mistake. To be agile, you need to think agile. All right. I hope you enjoyed this. Let me know your comments. What other major errors have you seen in people's or companies, entire companies' approach to Agile? I'd really like to know. If you can share with me in the chat, I'll really appreciate it. You take care and talk to you soon. Hello, welcome to Professional Responsibility. This is a place where we talk about the PMI Code of Ethics and professional conduct. So if you haven't read the PMP handbook, read it all the way to the end, but this is a very important part, so it becomes very important to read that. So take a look here, what is professional responsibility? Professional responsibility is adhering to the PMI code of ethics for understanding what is expected of you as a project manager who is PMP certified or someone who is a CAPM. Now, you may not even be a CAPM or PMP, but if you are a PMI member, then this code applies to you. If you are aspiring to become a PMP or CAPM, this code applies to you. So take a look here. Adhering to PMI Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct is a big thing. As far as the exam is concerned, you are going to be tested on the exam whether you really understand the Code of Ethics whether you understand what fairness is, whether you understand what respect is and what honesty is from different perspectives because you will be tested on the exam on these areas. Take a look here. Um, also, the area of maintaining high professional ethics and cultural competence in our emerging global society is a big thing on the exam. You have a responsibility to the profession. You have a responsibility to customers. You're probably like, how do I become responsible to the profession? Well, as far as the profession of project management is concerned, you have a responsibility to bring up others coming after you in the organization, make them understand what good project management is all about. If people are kind of ill-informed um, about what it means to practice good project management, you have to expose them to those things. For example, you're a project manager in an organization and you try to circumvent the process of creating a project management plan because you feel that your customers aren't paying for it. Not a good thing. Every project should have a project management plan, a work breakdown structure, you know, if nothing else. I'm not talking about a level five WBS, at least a high level one, maybe two, three levels, if you're not going to go down to all the details. Every project should have a schedule. If you don't have a schedule, you need to think again. When we talk about code of ethics as far as project management is concerned, we're kind of putting it on the same level as other professions. You know, like being a doctor, being, being an engineer, there's certain codes of ethics, right? Certain things that you would expect a doctor to do and an engineer to do, and certain things you wouldn't expect them to do, talking about ethics. And that is really what this Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct is tailored towards. But we're looking at project management as a profession. So there are certain things that you are expected to do as part of your ethics, part of your Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct on any project.
Let's take a look at the screen again. Um, cultural competence refers to understanding that diverse cultures could be working, people from diverse cultures could be working on your project, making them feel at home, feel comfortable, and treating them the right way. We also talk about a responsibility to customers and the public. Now, if the public are your stakeholders, you need to keep them informed. You need to make them aware of what your project is going to do as far as how it's going to impact the environment. You also need to keep your stakeholders informed um, at all times about the truth. You know, Don't hide the truth from the stakeholders. Let them know how the project is proceeding. Don't lie. Basically, that's what it's, it's saying here. Take a look. Truthful at all times. The project manager is meant to be truthful at all times. Reporting code violations. If there are any code violations, they need to be reported. Disclosing conflict of interest. So lots of people struggle with this area. They don't really understand. When you talk about good project management, it becomes very ambiguous. You know, good project management to some people is just giving the customer what they asked for, or at least what they thought they asked for. But good project management is really managing your project, using the standards of project management in the PMBOK guide, applying these standards in an ethical fashion. For example, you know very well, as a project manager, there's certain things that will bring your project to um, the best end possible. For example, risk management is a big one. Lots of project managers still don't practice risk management because they're like, oh, I don't want to go over the top on my project. It's not really a question of going over the top. You are ethically bound to apply certain things in the PMBOK guide in an ethical fashion. You know that it's good to have a risk management plan. You know that it's good to have a risk register. Those are the kind of things that you need to do as far as um, act in your company's best interest or act um, in the stakeholder's best interest or act in the public's best interest where the public is one of your stakeholders. Okay, Take a look over here. What else? It's ethical to have a project management plan, updated schedule, not just using the schedule as an artifact and keeping it there without updating it. Right? You could save time and money for your organization. The work breakdown structure is another big one. Use a work breakdown structure. Save resources. Applying the PMBOK guide inputs, tools, and techniques and outputs in an ethical manner is a big thing. Now, trade-offs is one of the things people try to shy away from. What do I mean by trade-offs? Trade-offs. You've ever worked on a project where your stakeholder's like, no, I want this in, in two weeks, and you're like, I know he can't, do it, he can't get this in two weeks, but I'm not going to tell him that I can't get it done in two weeks. Right? Trade-offs. How about making a trade-off and telling the honest truth and letting your stakeholder know, I can't get to you in two weeks. How about three weeks? Or how about two weeks, but I cut back on some of the scope? Or you're working on another project and your stakeholder tells you, uh, this software has to be implemented by the 31st of December. And you know very well you're not going to be able to make that happen for her instead of telling her, oh, you know, let's try and push out the schedule or let's try and cut back on the work. You keep quiet. You refuse to trade off. Another example is your boss comes to you and throws a piece of paper on your desk and says, I want you to make that happen in the next two months. But you know that these implementations take three months, four months. Or they're like, I want you to tell the customer that we can get this done in the next five days. But you know that you can't. You're not telling the truth. 
trade-offs. Those are good, good things, good means of trading off between time, cost, and scope. Let me just call your attention to managing the triple constraint. Look over here. Do you remember that? You remember the triple constraint? You probably remember, let's put time over here. Um, let's put cost over here and scope. Now, this could be in a variety of ways. But on any project, if you increase the scope of the project, right, you could very well end up increasing cost and time. Right? So as a project manager, you need to manage the triple constraint in an ethical fashion, understanding that if someone asks for additional scope, be honest about what it's going to do to the time. You know, it's going to make the time a lot longer. So be honest. What it's going to do to cost, you know, that is really what the code of ethics is geared at. I think you get the picture now. So the code of ethics goes a little bit more um, beyond just the EEO, um, just being um, ethical as far as what you understand it today. It talks about ethics from a project management standpoint, okay? Certain things which you are obligated to do as a project manager. Another one is... Um, you know, talking about the project management body of knowledge, you need to contribute to the project management body of knowledge. How do you do that? By bringing up junior project managers, by you know, explaining project management to them, by having a mentoring program, by sharing lessons learned and things like that. Very important. Take a look here. What else do we need to be aware of? One of the reasons for most IT projects being over budget and behind schedule is because people refuse to trade off. They refuse to have trade-offs with stakeholders. You know, they kind of try to fluff over the, the issue, and at the end, the project fails. You'd be very astonished to find out how many projects fail. I was reading a report a few days ago of how many projects had failed. There's a very high-profile project that failed. It cost billions, or I should say hundreds of millions, not a billion yet. It will soon be a billion, because right now it's about $650 million, this project that is it kind of looks like it's about to fail. And um, they first put $450 million in it, then they put $150 million in it, making it $600 million, and now they've extended it to 2011. It was meant to have ended since, I believe it was 2004, and they kept, kept on pushing it out over and over again. It's a very high-profile one. In fact, if you look for the top projects that have failed, you will probably come across this project that's about to hit $1 billion. Isn't that ridiculous? Why? Because project managers are supposed to be custodians, good custodians of resources, good custodians of money, good custodians of whatever the company provides for the project. And the project should be managed in a very um, stringent fashion because it's part of your code of ethics and professional conduct as a project manager. Now, take a look over here. One of the things that people often say on a project is, oh, that's non-negotiable. We can't do that or um, I can't budge, my manager won't let me budge. Well, trade-offs, going back to trade-offs, um, it's unethical to just accept those unrealistic time frames knowing that you can't meet them. The project manager, as you can see up there in the first bullet, project manager has a job for planning. The project manager has to be um, honest. The project manager has a duty to be um, truthful. Individual integrity is another big one. Protect the IP rights of others. Now, let me ask you this. You probably have seen this, this sign in many places. What does that mean? Maybe you see um, 
something like that. What does that mean? That means that Joe, right, has a copyright of whichever information you're looking at. So let me ask you this question. You work for an organization, and you were key in developing a new methodology that has been patented and documented, and you go to another organization, and you discover that they could use that technology and that information that has been documented. What should you do? A, should you just use it? Or B, should you go through the right channels before you use it? Even though it's your creation, right? You don't own the absolute copyright to it. Now, let's say Joe worked on something. At the end of the day, Joe works for, let's call it XYZ Corp, right? Now, Joe created that, but he works for XYZ Corp. He doesn't own the copyright for to that anymore. XYZ Corp does. So part of the thing about the corporate, um, working in a corporate and ethical manner is understanding that XYZ Corp owns the copyright. And looking at the screen here, you, the project manager, or you, whoever's working on the project, you have to protect the IP rights of others, right? The intellectual property rights. So whatever is not... Whatever you don't own, whatever is not your copyright, you can't just take it and use it. The other bullet there is no personal gain, no bribes, um, respect for yourself and others. Um, one of those bullet points, change my SPI, that's a true story. There's once someone asked me, could you please change my schedule performance index? My project looks really bad. Senior management's going to beat me up. I'm like, no, I can't change it for you. It's my ethical obligation to let everyone know what the SPI is on this project, okay? Um, what else? Do what is ethically right. Report violations, you know, violations regarding work, people trying to circumvent work procedures. Maybe there's a way that work is being done in the organization and someone is trying to shy away from it. You have to expose those violations, okay? Take a look up here. Enhance your individual competence. Promote interaction among stakeholders. Copyright laws. You ask the question, can I just make a copy of this software application and share with my friends freely? No, you can't. You don't own the copyright. Duplicating audio and music, forbidden. Who owns the copyright for your work at Company X? Of course, you know it's Company X, not you. So always put your company first and put the stakeholders first. Put the stakeholders' needs first. In this next slide, we see that violations need to be reported what kind of violations are we talking about? For example, there's someone in your organization, you know very well that this person is a PMP, but the person has been involved in bad practices in the profession, or maybe you know lying regarding the project, lying to stakeholders about the project status and all that, or just clearly disobeying the code of ethics. Those violations should be reported. It might not even be PMI-related. Maybe it's something regarding um, someone in a different profession and the person is circumventing what needs to be done. The PMI says those violations have to be reported. What else do we have up here? Contribute to the project management knowledge base. I've already talked about that. Resolving conflicts of interest, identifying and understanding cultural differences, and communicating with stakeholders in the best way. So let's have a bit of question and dialogue at this point. Let me ask you a few questions and see if you really understand what we've talked about so far. So question one, take a look here. On the day of completion, a stakeholder asks for a feature that you mentioned at the beginning of the project. 
never mentioning it in this phase, in the test phase until now. What could have prevented this? You know, what could have prevented it? Good stakeholder management, which is part of your code of ethics. Here's another one. You work for a software giant bidding on a global project. A competitor is also bidding. Unbeknownst to your boss, you have new employment with this rival company scheduled for later this year. Now they've asked you to spearhead the bidding process. What should you do? You have to take yourself out of it. But before you do that, disclose the conflict of interest and let them know why. Your sister is bidding on a project in your organization. It is a publicly held organization and you are the COO. What should you do? As usual, it's a conflict of interest. You have to take yourself out of the bidding process after you have disclosed the conflict of interest. Question four, you know that George lied about being certified as a PMP. What should you do? Once you say you know that someone lied, it probably means that you've, one, checked the PMI registry, and two, contacted the PMI. And if the person has really lied, what should you do? If you're his boss, needs to be fired, right? So don't fall for the, um, the question, which will say, what should you do with someone who lies on his resume? He's been in the company for the past 20 years. He lied on his resume. What should you do? A, transfer him to another part of the organization. B, fire him. Of course, you need to do what you, know, you need to do. He has to be removed. That, that could be looked at as criminal in some countries. Take a look at number six. You are now the project manager. Oh, well, you've got number five, which is George made a mess of the WBS in his planning efforts. What is the likely effect of George's blunders? You're going to have to re-baseline. The scope baseline is going to be off. Schedule may be off if you've gotten that far and so on. You're now the project manager. What should you do? Re-baseline. Your team members, your team member asks you to make a photocopy of the PMBOK guide. What should you do? What should you do? If someone asks you, you might have to educate them and let them know that's not allowed, that's forbidden, and so on. Question eight, you buy a copy of the PMBOK guide from a vendor and you discover on arrival the box is stuffed with photocopies. What should you do? And that's one you have to report to the PMI. It's a violation of PMI's um, property, PMI's um, copyright um, on the PMBOK guide. So that has to be reported. You are called in to drive this bidding process to select a vendor. What should you do to reduce the possibility of bias? Now, you probably remember in project procurement management, we talk about selection criteria, source selection criteria. Well, that's what you would use to minimize bias. Um, Question 10. Your team is working in a foreign country. They appear taken aback by the change in how life is lived and how projects are run. This effect is known as what? The answer to that we probably haven't talked about. Well, the answer to that is culture shock. Culture shock is the answer. So let me write out for you certain key terms that you need to be aware of for this particular area of the exam. Know what culture shock is. That's a big one. And being ethnocentric. Ethnocentric. Not good. Um, culture shock is pretty much what question 10 describes. If you look up there on the screen, you'll see what 10 describes. Ethnocentric refers to being um, centered around one's culture and one's religion, thinking that one's culture and one's religion is the best and everyone else's isn't as good. That's culture shock, ethnocentric. Another one is customary fee. 
You travel to a foreign country and you're asked to pay a customary fee to a government official. Should you or should you not? Well, when you ask yourself, what is a customary fee? A customary fee is really a fee that is custom in that area as far as the amount. For example, you go to um, get a passport. In the particular area you are, you pay a customary fee. If you want to expedite your passport, you pay a little bit extra. There's a customary fee associated with it. Right, and the customary fees differ in different parts of the world. Customary fees are not the same as bribes. Of course, bribes are paid to individuals, right, to do something that they should do as part of their job, or to do something that they shouldn't do as part of their job. There's a difference between a customary fee and a bribe. So do be aware of that. On the exam, you could be asked questions to that effect. Question eleven. Take a look. You're working with a risky vendor who has been known to underdeliver in previous projects. What should you do? You might want to think about risk transference. Think about transferring the risk, all right, to a third party. So you could transfer the risks by purchasing insurance or、um, performance bonds. A very good way. Question twelve: Your boss asks you to implement a risk deflection strategy. What is risk deflection? What does he mean by that? Risk deflection is the same as transferring the risk. So when you think about deflection, think about risk transfer. Okay.、Um, what else? Some other words to be aware of is,、um, or are rather,、um, let's talk about functional organization. That is one of the things. Organization. Another word for functional organization is traditional organization. Some other key things to be aware of for the exam.、Um, another term is projectized organization. Now, a projectized organization is also at times referred to as a pure project, pure project organization. So, just be aware of the little interchange of terms there. You could come across stuff like that. Take a look at number thirteen. What is a pure project organization? Obviously, you can answer the the question. It's a projectized organization. Okay, and let's talk a little bit about the code of ethics, and then we'll round this section up. The PMI code of ethics and professional conduct was developed with lots of input, participation from the global project management community. Commitment to the ethics is taken very seriously, and all practitioners are held accountable to the code. So, what's the vision of this code of ethics? The vision is people should be committed to doing what's right, what is honourable. Practitioners should aspire to meet the high standards、um, at work, at home, and in service to the profession. The purpose of the code is to instill confidence in the project management profession, such that if anyone ever heard that you are PMP, you know they'd have probably a lot of respect for you. Or you told someone, "I have a PMI certification. I'm CAPM certified." It gives you credibility, but with that credibility should also come that ethical expectation, those expectations that oh, high code of ethics and and so on.
Okay. Um, who does this code apply to? All PMI members, people who are not members of the PMI, um, but fall under one of these groups. Non-members who hold a PMI certification, non-members who apply to commence a PMI certification process, or non-members who serve PMI in a volunteer capacity. Looking at values of the code, the values defined in the code, these are the very important ones that are actually part of the code itself, are responsibility, respect, fairness, and honesty. Within the code, you'll see lots of reference to aspirational standards and mandatory standards. Aspirational standards um, are those standards that the practitioner should strive to uphold. Um, you are expected to adhere to these codes of ethics. Mandatory standards are firm requirements, and these limit or prohibit practitioner behavior. Let's talk about responsibility. What is responsibility? The PMI Code of Ethics describes this as responsibility is our duty to take ownership for decisions we make or fail to make, actions we take or fail to take, and consequences that result from those actions. Description of respect is given as high regard for ourselves, high regard for others, um, high regard for resources entrusted into our care. These could be people, money, reputation, safety of others, natural or environmental resources. And it describes an environment of respect as one that engenders trust, confidence, and performance excellence, and also fosters mutual cooperation. Um, also, description of fairness here. Um, fairness is our duty to make decisions impartially and objectively, to act impartially and objectively. Um, it describes fair conduct as one that is free from competing self-interest, prejudice, and favoritism. Um, description of honesty here is understanding the truth, you know, aspiring to understand the truth, acting in a truthful manner, and um, both in our communications and our conduct. And that brings us to the end of this course, PMP Exam Prep Camp. For this particular module, you don't have a code to enter, so don't bother looking for one. You are good. All you need to do is take the quiz on the learning management system, and you'll be able to get credit for this. So taking a look at the screen, you can see, what does that mean? Well, it just means you've got an obligation to pass. After all that you've gone through, you are going to pass either the PMP or the CAPM or whichever exam that you are looking at taking. Okay? So congrats and well done. Don't forget to do certain important things. I will write out a few things that I think will really help you as you prepare for the exam. Whether it's the CAPM or the PMP or the RMP or the SP, what I'm about to show you will help you. So first of all, you might want to read the standard that the exam is based on. The most popular exams, of course, are the PMP and the CAPM. But lots of the other exams are based on the PMBOK guide. If you haven't done this before, I strongly recommend that you read the PMBOK guide twice. Right? You also want to study a knowledge area Study a knowledge area a day. Okay? What else do you need to do? 
you also need to take lots of practice quizzes. If you take lots of practice quizzes, that will kind of get you up to speed with all the knowledge areas and all the things you need to know. Don't forget the learning management system.、Um, if you've signed up for it, we've got modules on the learning management system. We've got quizzes. We've got tons of resources on the learning management system. It's a very good way of getting ready for the exam. In fact, some of our students just go through the learning management system and they pass the exam without anything else. They don't even go for a life class. Now, on the learning management system, the big thing at the end is our mock exam. Our mock exam will give you a very realistic idea of how the real exam is. You've got 200 questions、um, that will be served to you from a larger pool. It will never really be exactly the same questions, but it'll give you an idea of what the real exam is. And if you can end up passing the mock exam, of course, which is how you get credit for all your work on this particular course, if you can pass the mock exam, right, with a 70% score, probably a good indication that you're ready. So there's lots of things that you're going to have to do, right? But when you get to the mock exam and you take a look at your score, it will tell you how much more work you need to do. Now, we have about three other. Three other quizzes. Some of the quizzes we have are anything from 50 to 200 questions. Right now, we have another bank of,、um, we have two other banks of 200 questions and several other banks of 50 questions. So you might want to do that as a final cap on all your preparation for the exam. But the big, big thing study a knowledge area a day. That will keep the PMP blues away. You definitely don't want to get the blues in this stuff. Do you know what I mean by that? There are lots of people who have trained over time, and、um, I want to say that very few people actually get enough courage to take the exam or actually get enough drive. Why? They're already working in a job. They're like, you know, I've already got a job. I don't need to go out and take the exam. Well, fine. Well, you're going to be here in two years, and your, your subordinates are going to end up taking the exam before you, you know. And I have other people within one week, they're done with the course. They've taken the exam, they've passed the exam. So it really depends on your drive. I really advise you to be driven. You know, if you're working in the field of project management, practicing project management, why on earth would you delay getting PMP certified? Do you know what being PMP certified does for you? It adds credibility to you, it adds some more oomph to your resume, doesn't it? It adds that extra power to show, oh, I'm project manager. And not just, you know, in words, but also in action. And here are my certificates. You know, so this is definitely something you need to, to start working on sooner than later. And of course, the big thing at the end, kind of what we've got on the screen, is you need to get certified. Get certified and add some, you know, put some backup to your resume and to your profession. Okay, so thank you very much for staying with us for the duration of this course. If you have any questions, Don't forget to send an email to this address on your screen info at praiseon.com. Okay? And we want to hear back from you. We want to know how well did you perform on the exam, how are you finding your studying, 
Have you got any questions on the inputs, tools, and techniques and outputs? Okay. So all the best and see you again soon. Did I hear someone say I need a coach for the PMP exam or project management? Hey, if that's you, go on down to pmanonymous.com. I'm accepting new students. Let's knock this exam out and let's get your career straight. See you there. Hello there, my friends. It's your buddy Phil, project management trainer and coach. Today we're going to be talking about Agile. I love the Agile Alliance roadmap that shows you lots of terms. In fact, it's called the Agile Subway Map. The Agile Subway Map can be found on the Agile Alliance website. But we're going to talk about a smattering of terms. Some of these could be very helpful in your ACP exam and your PMP exam. So we're going to start off on the yellow line. Now, if you've ever been to the UK, you know where this is from. It looks very similar to the London Underground. But I know we have other subway systems in the world. It just reminds me so much of the London Underground. But let's start off on the yellow line. And we call this the circle line in the UK. It starts off with the project charter. The project charter is a very important document in the world of the PMI. In fact, no charter, no project. And the Agile Alliance say... The team develops and maintains a high-level summary of the project's key success factors, synthetic enough that it can be displayed on one wall of the team room as a flip chart size sheet of paper. Now, in the world of the PMI, we may define a project charter differently, but the bottom line is it puts everyone on the same page. If you're taking the PMP exam or the ACP exam, the bottom line is no charter, no project. The next term is sustainable pace. Now, if you've read the Agile Manifesto, you know that the team and the business people must maintain a constant pace indefinitely. Constant pace does not mean fast pace. Constant pace needs to be sustainable. So, it reads, the team aims for a work pace that they would be able to sustain indefinitely. This entails a firm refusal of what is often considered a necessary evil in the software industry, long work hours, overtime, or even working nights or weekends. You know how that goes. The next one here is a scrum of scrums. If you haven't taken a look in your Agile practice guide at the scrum of scrums, you should. The scrum of scrums is a scaling technique. It's a technique to scale scrum up to large groups of over a dozen people consisting of dividing the groups into Agile teams of 5 to 10. Each daily scrum within a sub-team ends by designating one member as ambassador to participate in a daily meeting with ambassadors from other teams. And it's called a scrum of scrums. It's got a great visual in the Agile practice guide. So imagine a team of, let's say, five or six, and you have one ambassador from that team meeting up with another ambassador from another team and another ambassador from another team. And you end up having different pods scaling up so that instead of bringing 30, 40 people together, it boils down to having three people meet for a scrum of scrum of scrums. And you could scale that up as much as you like. I think this is a brilliant technique that should be used even beyond the agile industry. The next term we're going to talk about is pair programming. Pair programming consists of two programmers sharing a single workstation, one screen, one keyboard, one mouse, among the pair. The program at the keyboard is usually called a driver and the other is also actively involved in the programming task but focusing more on overall direction. We call that person the navigator. So pair programming 
more simply known as pairing. The phrases paired programming and programming in pairs are also used frequently. The next term we're going to talk about is team room. Team room refers to a dedicated space for the team. This is the team's haven. Think of it like that. The team, ideally the whole team, including the product owner or domain expert, has the use of a dedicated space for the duration of the project, set apart from other group activities. This space is furnished with the various amenities that the teams may need, workstations, adapted for pairing if the team uses that practice, whiteboards and flip charts, wall space to display task boards, project plans, or other charts. Next on the yellow line, we'll talk about the retrospective. It's referred to here as heartbeat retrospective. And the reason is it adheres to the rhythm of the iterations. Roy and I often refer to this as Agile Vegas. In other words, whatever happens in Vegas stays there. Whatever happens in the retrospective should stay there. It's a facilitated meeting following a set format. Several distinct formats have been described depending in large part on the time set aside for the meeting, typically between one and three hours. One important reason to use a facilitated format is to give all team members an opportunity to speak up. The term retrospective, popularized by Norm Keith, has gained favor in the Agile community over better known ones such as debriefing or postmortem for its more positive connotations. This is also known as the sprint retrospective or iteration retrospective, often abbreviated as sprint retro. The term reflection workshop from Alistair Coburn is encountered less often, though it appears to have influenced the Agile Manifesto's wording of the corresponding principle. A retrospective is intended to reveal facts or feelings which have measurable effects on the team's performance and to construct ideas. And as you know, where feelings are involved, we need to tread carefully. And that is why we tend to be more secluded about the retrospective. It's not open to everyone. It is very different from a lessons learned session where we open up a lessons learned to several individuals from the firm or associated firms and organizations. In the retrospective, as much as possible, we try to keep what we're talking about close to the vest. In some instances, we could have other people, other entities from outside the team, by invitation, attend the retrospective. An effective retrospective will normally result in decisions leading to action items. It's a mistake to have too few or too many. One or two improvement ideas per duration may be well enough. Identical issues coming up each retrospective without measurable improvement over time signals that the retrospective has just become an empty ritual. Still on the yellow line, next we have the word facilitation. Who is a facilitator? A facilitator is a person who chooses or is given the explicit role of conducting a meeting. This role usually entails that the facilitator will take little part in the discussions on the meeting's topic but will focus primarily on creating the conditions for effective group process in the pursuit of the objectives for which the meeting was convened. Facilitation is a specialization of its own, the details of which go well beyond agile practices. A good introduction is a material provided by the International Association of Facilitators. Now, having facilitated a number of meetings 
a number of engagements, I can tell you, one of the best traits of a facilitator is one who is sensitive to those in the room, and one who is observant to note those who are not speaking enough and to ask the right questions to bring people in at the right time in the right way. Still on the yellow line, we have one more thing to talk about, and that is by far the most important for today. It is team. Now, when we say team, there are many different connotations for this word. By team, we could be referring to the scrum team in a world of scrum. Or even in a world of Kanban, we could be referring to all the team. So, it is important to ask the question, are we talking about all the team members? Are we talking about a subsection of the team? A team, in the Agile sense, is a small group of people assigned to the same project or effort, nearly all of them on a full-time basis. A small minority of team members may be part-time contributors or may have competing responsibilities. The notion of team entails shared accountability, good or bad. The outcomes should be attributed to the entire team rather than to any individual. The team is expected to possess all of the necessary competencies. Remember, we use the word T-shaped. T-shaped skills, broken comb, paint drip. So the team is expected to possess all of the necessary competencies, whether technical or business. Roles and responsibilities do not matter as much as results. A developer may test performance analysis or think about requirements. An analyst or domain expert can suggest ideas about implementation and so on. So the bottom line is T-shaped skills. Another key one is self-organizing, self-led, self-managed team. The most elementary error is to equate group and team, to think that a team results automatically from having people work together. A team should have at least three people. Two is a pair. We look for three. In the world of Agile, three to nine. A single person may be a contributor to more than one project simultaneously, but it's highly unlikely that they will consider themselves as belonging to more than one team at the same time. So team is really big when it comes to the world of Agile. And for your exam, you will be tested pretty heavily on the concept of team, how to engage the team, how to support the team, how to build the team, and topics like that. And that concludes our first episode of the Agile Subway. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to hit like, subscribe, share with your friends. And in subsequent episodes, we'll cover the pink line, the red line, the green line, the purple line, the turquoise line, the cream line, and the orange line. See you there. Hello, my most awesome project managers, fellow colleagues. Welcome to PMP Exam Radio Show. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you this weekend. I hope you're doing well. My buddy Roy and I have been doing a lot of training, a lot of training plans. Actually, in September 2021, we're starting a brand new series. It's a PMBOK Guide 7th Edition Workshop, in which we look at the standard for project management. This is the latest of the standards, the 7th edition. 
we're going to look at the Pembok Guide 7th edition through an agile lens. It proves to be extremely exciting. And at the same time, we're also going to be taking a look at it through a hybrid lens. So by the time you are done with this workshop, which is at hybridprojectmanagement.com, you will come away with a very robust understanding of the world of project management through an agile lens. But today, still talking about agile, we are moving into some more fun questions. I'm glad that lots of you found these questions to be extremely useful. And we are still in the world of agile for today. So here's your first question. True or false? Kanban relies on a pull system for work to be done. And you do know the rules. I typically give you 10 to 15 seconds to answer the question. And I give you a countdown. So here's your countdown. Three, two, and one. The answer is true. Kanban does rely on a pull system for work to be done. Next question. Kanban works to reduce waste and defects by increasing whip limits. Kanban works to reduce waste and defects by increasing whip limits. True or false? Three, two, one. The answer is false. Kanban works to reduce waste and defects by decreasing whip limits. You never want your whip limits to be high. You want them to be low. The lower your whip limit, the quicker you're going to get stuff done and the more waste you're going to get rid of. Next question. Leading training and coaching the organization in its scrum adoption is the job of the scrum master. True or false? Leading, training, and coaching the organization in its scrum adoption is the job of the scrum master. True or false? Three, two, and one. That is true. It is indeed one of the jobs of the Scrum Master to lead, train, and coach the organization in its Scrum adoption. Next question. On a Scrum project, the developers who will be doing the work are responsible for the sizing. On a Scrum project, the developers who will be doing the work are responsible for the sizing. Three, two, and one. Okay, the answer to that is true. On a Scrum project, it's the developers. In other words, the team of individuals who develop the product, service, or result. They are responsible for the sizing. Remember, on a Scrum team, we've got three roles. We've got the product owner, the Scrum master, and the team. And when we say team, we're really talking about developers or development team, if you will. Next question. On an agile project, cost and schedule are fixed. True or false?
three, two, and one. The answer to that question is true. On an Agile project, you have a time box schedule and you have a cost amount for the work being done in that sprint. So that is true. Here is your next question. On an Agile project, scope and schedule are flexible, true or false. On an Agile project, scope and schedule are flexible, true or false. Three, two, and one. The answer to that question is false. Now, while scope is flexible on an Agile project, schedule is not, and that is what makes it false. So on your exam, PMP exam, ACP exam, just be aware, whenever you're giving questions, check the option thoroughly because one little thing in the option could invalidate that option. Next question. Part of the product owner's responsibilities are ensuring that all Scrum events take place and are positive, productive, and kept within the time box. Part of the product owner's responsibilities are ensuring that all Scrum events take place and are productive, positive, and kept within the time box. True or false? Three, two, and one. The answer to that is false. This is not the product owner's responsibility to ensure that all Scrum events take place and are positive, productive, and kept within the time box. Instead, it is the job of the Scrum Master. Next question. Product backlog items are written solely by the product owner. True or false? Three, two, and one. The answer to that question is false. Product backlog items are not written solely by the product owner. Other stakeholders and team members could write these product backlog items as well. Next question. Retrospectives are the heartbeat of Scrum, where ideas are turned into value. True or false? answer to that statement is false. Sprints are the heartbeat of Scrum, not the retrospective. So, retrospectives are not 
where ideas are turned into value. Instead, it is the sprint. Next question. True or false? Scrum is founded on empiricism. Three, two, and one. That is absolutely true. Scrum is founded on empiricism. We consider real values of work that we perform, velocity, history, extremely important. Based on what we do, we can plan for the future. Understanding one's velocity is a huge part of the agile movement and then planning accordingly. Let's go on to our next one. Setting up remote pairing by using virtual conferencing tools to share screens helps manage communication in dispersed teams. True or false? Three, two, and one. The answer to that question is true. Setting up remote pairing by using virtual conferencing tools to share screens indeed does help manage communication in virtual teams, in dispersed teams. This is also talked about in the Agile Practice Guide. Next question. True or false? Tasks are estimated in story points. True or false? All right, three, two, and one. The answer is false. Tasks are not estimated in story points. In the world of Agile, tasks are estimated in hours. Next question. Task switching consumes work in memory and people are less likely to remember their context when they multitask. True or false? I'll read it one more time. Task switching consumes work in memory and people are less likely to remember their context when they multitask. Three, two, and one. The answer is indeed true. Task switching consumes work in memory. It's not a good practice to multitask. Task switching, when people use it, they are not multitasks evenly across whatever they're working. For example, if you have one person working on two tasks, it's not a 50-50 split across the task. When you boil it down, research has shown that it could be as low as 20 to 40%. So multitasking, task switching, not a good idea. Next question. 
technical debt owed by the team can be erased if the product owner declares it to be so. True or false? Three, two, and one. That is an absolutely false statement. Technical debt cannot be declared as erased by anyone. Next question. Technical excellence constrains agility and adds overhead. True or false? Okay, three, two, and one. The answer is false. Technical excellence and good design enhances your agility. So, to some people, technical excellence might seem like a waste of time, but those who know the importance of technical excellence from an agile perspective know that it actually enhances agility. Remember, that is one of the principles. So, if you haven't read your Agile manifesto principles, I advise you to do that. Okay, just a few more questions, and we will be done for the day. Next one: the backlog should be prioritized by the product owner. True or false? Three, two, and one. That is a true statement. The backlog should be prioritized by the product owner. Now, does the product owner seek help and advice from the team? Yes, he or she could. But the ultimate accountability is with the product owner. For that reason, you hear product owners being referred to sometimes. In agile space, as the chief value officer, so a true statement. Okay, next question. The definition of done is a formal description of the state of the increment when it meets the quality measures required for the product. I'll read it again. The definition of done is a formal description of the state of the increment when it meets the quality measures required for the product. All right, three, two. And one, that, my friends, is absolutely true. The definition of done is a formal description of the state of the increment when it meets the quality measures required for the product. Next question: The definition of ready 
is decided on during the sprint review ceremony. True or false? Okay, three, two, and one. The answer is false. The definition of ready is not decided on during the sprint review ceremony. In actual fact, this should be decided upon before the sprint begins. Think about it like this. Your team charter, which should happen before you begin the project in earnest, contains information such as what ready means so that the team can take in work and also it contains what done means so before even getting into the sprint you should have an understanding of the definition of ready let's take a look at the agile practice guide and read the definition of ready real quick it is a team's checklist for user-centric requirement that has all the information the team needs to be able to begin working on it. Now, we need to be careful when we say requirement. A better word would be request. So a user-centered request that could be in your product backlog. That is how we should think about the definition of ready. Because remember, a requirement means it must be done. A request means let's have conversation, let's have dialogue. It may not make its way into the final. Got it? All right, the good news, we only have three questions left. The developers on a scrum team decide the product backlog items to be done each sprint. True or false? Three, two, one. The answer is false. The developers on a scrum team do not decide the product backlog items to be done each sprint. This is something that the product owner and, of course, the stakeholders should be decided upon, but could the team give advice and insights? They could, but they are not responsible for doing that. So the answer is false. Next question. The duration of a daily stand-up meeting is generally 15 minutes. True or false? Three, two, and one. The answer is true. The duration of a daily stand-up meeting is indeed generally 15 minutes. Let's go to our final question. The duration of a sprint review meeting is less than two hours for a one-month sprint. True or false? Three, two, and one. All right, the answer is false. Let's take a look at the Scrum Guide and see what it says. The sprint retrospective concludes the sprint. It is time boxed to a maximum of three hours for a one-month sprint. For shorter sprints, the event is usually shorter. So they did not say a minimum. It just reads a maximum. For that reason, the answer is false. All right, thank you very much for joining me. I wish you all the very best as you work towards your certification, be it PMP, ACP, or any other certification. Bye for now.
And don't forget, hybridprojectmanagement.com is the website to go to if you want to be part of the workshop that Roy and I are having September 2021, where we review the PMBOK Guide 7th edition in its entirety. We look forward to seeing you. Bye for now. Hello, my friends. It's your buddy Phil here. It's a reminder that I have coaching and training sessions one-on-one. If the PMP exam has been giving you a lot of trouble, now's the time for us to sit down one-on-one and get it down pat. You know the exam has so many moving parts. Agile, Scrum in particular, the PMBOK guide, hybridization, so much stuff. A lot of times people just need one or two sessions to get their head straight. Some people need more than one session, but for the most part, I've found one session to be so freeing and liberating for students. If that sounds like something you want to take advantage of, go on down to pmanonymous.com. That's pmanonymous.com. And we'll work together and get you in ship shape to knock this PMP exam out. Let's get into today's show. A question I get from a lot of individuals is what is Agile? So today we're going to take a look at what exactly Agile is. Agile is many different things to different individuals. It depends on who you ask. But one thing should be true across all definitions of Agile. And it is the fact that Agile is not just about software and technology. Agile is not a way of developing anything. First and foremost, Agile is a way of thinking. So we're going to define Agile today. And a simple definition is Agile is first and foremost an adaptable, value-driven way of thinking. So I want you to begin to think of Agile as a way you think. Think in an Agile fashion. Think in an adaptable fashion. Thinking in an Agile fashion means not being bound to a plan, but being ready to adapt as the plan may need to change. A favorite quote is from Mike Tyson, and it says, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. Someone who is agile understands that and is ready to adapt based on what is happening in the environment. Agile is not about software. Agile is first and foremost an adaptable, value-driven way of thinking. Agile is an adaptable, value-driven way of thinking and processing empirical data into valuable information. What do we mean by that? When we say empirical data, we mean data that is real, not bogus data, not data that is from other processes or environments outside of ours. We're talking about data generated from our experience, experiential data. So in Agile, we process that data into valuable information. Data becomes information through lean-driven analysis. In other words, we keep it as simple and just barely enough. And we use that to enable iterative improvements to deliverable development processes. Now, when we think agilely, not only are we thinking about deliverable development processes, we should also be thinking about our improvement as a team our improvement as the individuals who are working the processes. Now, these iterative improvements should generate the most favorable and valuable outcome for the customer. 
In the world of agile, we are obsessed with the customer satisfaction. So, agile does not mean software, IT, and technology. Though it could be used to develop software and systems, that is not what agile is primarily. Agile, first and foremost, is a way of thinking. I often say you can detect an agile thinker and an agile process, method, or framework a mile away using the simple manifesto litmus test. In the world of agile, we should be focusing on data from our experiences, from our team's experiences, data that is generated from stuff that we actually did. And that is the empirical data that we are going to process to enable us glean information through lean-driven analysis. What do we mean by lean-driven analysis? We mean just barely enough. What will get us to our goal is all we want to do. Not any more, not any less. Lean-mindedness pervades agile. So we could say, while we're thinking adaptably and we're processing this empirical data into valuable information through our lean-driven analysis, whatever those analyses may be, we are looking to enable iterative improvements to deliverable development processes. In other words, we want to get better and better at what we do. We want to go through those cycles, just like the PDCA cycle, plan, do, check, act. But at the end, we want to think about how can we get better. That's what Agile is all about. I love this one from the Agile Alliance. And honestly, it's an organization you should go look into. Take a look at the Agile Alliance website. Agile, they say, is the ability to create and respond to change. It is a way of dealing with and ultimately succeeding in an uncertain and turbulent environment. The authors of the Agile Manifesto chose Agile as the label for this whole idea because that word represented the adaptiveness and response to change, which was so important to the approach. It's really about thinking through how you can understand what's going on in the environment that you're in today. Identify what uncertainty you're facing and figure out how you can adapt to that as you go along. Now, let's talk about Agile beginnings. If you go to agilemanifesto.org, and many different pieces of that site, including the Agile Manifesto, we'll take a look at. But let's get into a little bit of history regarding the Agile Manifesto. So paraphrasing this wonderful article written by Jim Highsmith, you might have heard of the Highsmith decision spectrum. Well, he wrote this lovely article, and I'm going to paraphrase it. On February 11th to 13th in 2001, 17 people met to talk, ski, relax, and to find common ground, and of course, to eat. What emerged was the Agile Software Development Manifesto. Representatives from XP, Scrum, DSDM, Adaptive Software Development, Crystal, Feature-Driven Development, and others, sympathetic to the need for an alternative to documentation-driven heavyweight software development processes, convened. Now, a bigger gathering of organizational anarchists would be hard to find. So what emerged from this meeting was symbolic, a manifesto for agile software development signed by all participants. As to Coburn's initial concerns reflected the early thoughts of many participants. I personally didn't expect that this particular group of agileites to ever agree on anything substantive, but his post-meeting feelings were also shared. Speaking for myself, I am delighted by the final phrasing of the manifesto. 
I was surprised that the others appeared equally delighted by the final phrasing. So for those of you who like to read the history of things, go on down to the Agile Manifesto website, look for the history. These folks named themselves the Agile Alliance. This group of independent thinkers about software development and sometimes competitors to each other, by the way, agreed on the manifesto for Agile software development displayed on the title page of the website I just referred you to. But while the manifesto provides some specific ideas, there's a deeper theme that drives many, but not all, to be sure, members of the Alliance. At the close of the two-day meeting, Bob Martin joked that he was about to make a mushy statement, but while tinged with humor, few disagreed with Bob's sentiment that we all felt privileged to work with a group of people who held a set of compatible values, a set of values based on trust and respect for each other and promoting organizational models based on people, watch this, collaboration, and building the types of organizational communities in which we want to work. And that is at the core of this manifesto. And that is why when you look at the title, you could be misled to just see software development. But it's not about that. It's truly more far-reaching than that. And I dare say more far-reaching that these 17 awesome folks even imagined it would be because this is an approach. It's a philosophy to life. It's a philosophy to business. At the core, writes Jim, I believe agile methodologies are really about mushy stuff, about delivering good products to customers by operating an environment that does more than talk about people as our most important asset but actually acts as if people were the most important and lose the word asset. So in the final analysis, meteoric rise of interest in and sometimes tremendous criticism of agile methodologies is about the mushy stuff. I have a saying, I often say, the soft stuff is the tough stuff. And that is why agile is so wildly popular. For example, says Jim, I think that ultimately extreme programming has mushroomed in use and interest, not because of pair programming or refactoring, but because taken as a whole, the practices define a developer community free from the baggage of Dilbertesque corporations. Ken Beck tells the story of an early job in which he estimated a programming effort of six weeks for two people. After his manager reassigned the other program at the beginning of the project, He completed the project in 12 weeks and felt terrible about himself. The boss, of course, harangued Kent about how slow he was through the second six weeks. Kent, somewhat despondent because he was such a failure as a programmer, finally realized that his original estimate of six weeks was extremely accurate for two people and that his failure was really the manager's failure. Indeed, the failure of the standard fixed process mindset that so frequently plagues our industry. You see, it is a mindset. So when we talk about Agile, we're not just talking about development of a product, service, or result. No, that comes later on. Primarily, we're talking about a mindset, the way you think. This type of situation goes on every day, marketing or management or external customers, internal customers, and yes, even developers don't want to make hard trade-off decisions. So they impose irrational demands, through the imposition of corporate power structures. This isn't merely a software development problem. It runs through Dilbertes corporations, organizations. In order to succeed in the new economy, to move aggressively into the era of e-business, e-commerce, and the web, companies, entire companies, we're not talking about individuals now, company think at that high level, 
they have to rid themselves of their Dilbert manifestations of make, work, and arcane policies. This freedom from the inanities of corporate life attracts proponents of agile methodologies and scares the bejeebus <laughs> out of traditionalists. We'll spare that word. Quite frankly, the agile approaches scare corporate bureaucrats, at least those that are happy pushing process for process sake versus trying to do the best for the customer and deliver something timely and tangible as promised because they run out of places to hide. The agile movement is not anti-methodology. In fact, many of us want to store credibility to the word methodology. We want to restore a balance. We embrace modeling, but not in order to file some diagram in a dusty corporate repository. We embrace documentation, but not hundreds of pages of never maintained and rarely used tomes. We plan and recognize the limits of planning in a turbulent environment. Those who would brand proponents of XP or Scrum or any of the other agile methodologies as hackers are ignorant of both the methodologies and the original definition of the term hacker. The meeting at Snowbird was incubated at an earlier get-together of extreme programming proponents and a few outsiders organized by Kent Beck at the Rogue River Lodge in Oregon in the spring of 2000. In September 2000, Bob Martin from Object Mentor in Chicago started the meet next meeting ball rolling with an email. I'd like to convene a small two-day conference in the January to February 2001 timeframe here in Chicago. The purpose of this conference is to get all the lightweight method leaders in one room. All of you are invited, and I'd be interested to know who else I should approach. Bob set up a wiki site, and the discussions raged. Early on, Alistair Coburn weighed in with an epistle that identified the general disgruntlement with the word light. I don't mind the methodology being called light in weight, but I'm not sure I want to be referred to as a lightweight, attending a lightweight methodologist meeting. Trust Alistair, it's quite the character, isn't he? It somehow sounds like a bunch of skinny, feeble-minded, lightweight people trying to remember what day it is. The fiercest debate was over location. There was serious concern about Chicago in wintertime, cold and Nothing fun to do. Snowbird, Utah, cold, but fun things to do, at least for those who ski on their heads, like Martin Fowler tried one day on day one. So they went back and forth deciding where to go and when, and eventually they decided Snowbird Resort in Utah. We hope our work together as the Agile Alliance helps others in our profession to think about software development methodologies and organizations in new, more agile ways. If so, we've accomplished our goals. Brilliantly written, Jim. Great stuff. That is a very robust history of the Agile Manifesto. Now, let's talk about something else. We've talked about the Agile mindset. Let's talk about what is Agile Software Development. Now, this is from the Agile Alliance. Agile Software Development is different from general Agile, as I would call it. Agile software development is more than frameworks such as Scrum, XP, or FDD. Agile software development is more than practices such as pair programming, test-driven development, stand-ups, planning sessions, and sprints. Agile software development is an umbrella term for a set of frameworks and practices based on the values and principles expressed in the manifesto for agile software development and the 12 principles behind it. When you approach software development in a particular manner, 
It's generally good to live by these values and principles and use them to help figure out the right things to do given your particular context. So as I said in the very beginning, when you think about Agile, all of those iterative improvements that I talked about in the very beginning should generate the most favorable outcome. Maybe by now you've found how this way of thinking is founded on people, humans, interactions of individuals, given our customer value. So agile does not mean software, IT, and technology. Yes, there's something called agile software development, as I just showed you on the previous slide, but that is not agile primarily. It can be used to develop software and systems, but that's not what it is. By the time I show you the Agile Manifesto, you'll be able to detect an Agile thinker and an Agile process, an Agile method, or an Agile framework a mile away using the simple Manifesto litmus test. And that, similar to what Jim Highsmith said in what we just read, is, does this fit the Agile description? Sometimes you get a process where people tout the process as Agile, But it's not. Sometimes you get a big old lumbering fat framework that people try to push as agile, but it is not agile. Just taking a look at the Agile Manifesto, you'll know if it's agile or not. So I hope by now it's making sense why you should be agile. Agile is not for the strongest of the species. It's not about I'm the strongest. No. Agile is about those who are most adaptable to change. It is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent, but the one most adaptable to change. Those are the ones who are truly agile. Now, why agile? Why not waterfall? Agile or waterfall? Well, this is encapsulated in the Stacy complexity model that you see on the screen. Also, sometimes referred to as a Stacy model. Now, on the y-axis right here, you have requirements. You're either close to agreement or far from agreement. So we'll put an R here for requirements. Here, we have technology, the technology process for whatever you're doing, the technological dimensions. You are either close to certainty about the technology process, the technology in and of itself, or you're far from certainty. Sometimes you've got no clue how to make a project happen. You don't understand how to code. You don't understand the language that you're going to be using to code because it hasn't even been written. Everything is so far out. In instances like that, Agile will thrive. Agile is best when there's high variability. So you could start off in the simple space on projects that are predictive in nature. And this is okay. We typically call this waterfall. It works best when the requirements are, watch this, close to agreement, and when we understand the technology we're working with, we're close to certainty about that. So being in the simple space is okay. There's nothing wrong in predictive projects. But a time comes when you begin to venture towards the complex world. And when you're venturing towards a complex world, you may even pass by complicated, right? Complicated does not mean complex. Complicated could mean Lots of different facets and steps. But if you follow the step one, two, three, four, all the way to thousand, you're going to get there. So complicated, we often use the example, Roy and I, of building a watch. Building a watch has a lot of steps. It's complicated. But we know where we want to arrive at. 
We know how we're going to arrive there. The technologies are not hard to understand. We know the technologies. It's been done before. It's predictive. Yes, even building a watch with all the thousand plus steps. Yes. But when we talk about complex, complex means we don't really know how we're going to get there. We've got an idea of where we want to be, but we don't know how to get there. Simple as driving to Kamloops, British Columbia. Now, you might say, Phil, I've never been to Kamloops. That in and of itself is a challenge. Well, for those who know how to get there, they'll tell you. It's possible you may take different routes. It's not absolutely certain you're going to go one way. There are different ways. Now, let's talk about you driving to work. Do you know how you're going to get to work tomorrow? You've got an idea, of course. But what happens if you hit the, I don't know how you drive to work. Maybe you get on Main Street. Let's say there's traffic on Main Street. Let's say there's traffic on Broadway that you could use as an alternative. Now you're faced with complexities, things that you didn't foresee. Now you don't know how you're going to get to work. Maybe you'd get on the I-10. You see, it's changing. It's adaptable. It needs some agile think. And then you get into full-blown anarchy, chaos. This is where agile thrives. So agile is best when there's high variability, need to experiment to discover the best solution, and change is likely. However, you do need a lot of things to make it work. Big one, buy-in from management. Two, T-shaped skills. T-shaped skills pretty means broad set of skills, deep specialisms. And being co-located, it helps as well. These are some of the things you need to use with Agile. So when you take a look at the traditional way of managing projects, scope is typically fixed, and schedule and budget are flexible. We estimate them, but we can change them. In the world of Agile, we flip that on its head. And now, schedule and budget are fixed. We have a fixed time box. We have a fixed number of resources. And scope is flexible. Now, I wish I could go into this a lot more, but we do that in our training. This is really more like an introduction to Agile. Agile is not just for IT. It's used everywhere. We have coached and mentored firms that are in product development, uh, oil and gas, engineering, Even the U.S. Air Force has been one of Roy's clients being trained and coached in the world of Agile. So everyone is thinking Agile. Governments are thinking Agile. It might amaze you that the U.K. government has a portal dedicated to Agile. It's on www.gov.uk forward slash service dash manual forward slash Agile dash delivery. I'm going to put a link below so you can check out the awesome UK government's repository for Agile. And believe it or not, the US government as well has a PDF document on Agile. And they're asking for comments on it. And it's called Agile Assessment Guide, Best Practices for Agile Adoption and Implementation. So everyone knows Agile is not just for products, could use it for services, could use it for anything under the sun because it's a way of thinking and you need to think to tackle problems. The PMI in the Agile Practice Guide on page 19 makes a case in this for why you should be on a continuum. In some instances, you might find yourself in a very predictive situation. In other instances, you might find yourself somewhere in between. Therefore, we see it as a continuum 
We don't see it as black or white. Either you are predictive or you are agile. No, we see a variety of possibilities. So in addition to this, just to put some further context to this image, you have two other options, which I have not shown here. You have agile all the way up here. And you have incremental over here. So in other words, if you're working on a project with a low frequency of delivery and a low degree of change, absolutely nothing wrong in predictive. It's a one-time delivery. If you're working on a project that has a high degree of change, low frequency of delivery, you could think iterative. But if you're working on high frequency of delivery, high degree of change, this is where agile will thrive. And of course, incremental can be used where there's a low degree of change, high frequency of delivery. We talk a lot more about that in our classes. So with all that said and done, let's talk about the Agile Manifesto. If you go to agilemanifesto.org, like I told you, not only will you be able to read Jim's brilliant article, you will also be able to read the Agile Manifesto values and principles. So let's read the values first. We are uncovering better ways of developing products. Now, for those who are very used to the manifesto, you see that we have made a tweak. And this is Roy's handiwork here, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Because in today's world, it is not about software alone. We are uncovering better ways of developing product by helping it and helping others do it. So we made that tweak. Through this work, we have come to value individuals and interactions over processes and tools. It's all about the humans. You get a better outcome when you think about humans. Work in product over comprehensive documentation. It's all about a product that works, not about reams and reams of paper and documents for a product that is no good or doesn't work. We're not saying documentation is not any good, but we're saying a working product will always trump documentation. Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. Think about collaborating with your customer as opposed to pointing to a contract and thinking about change orders after change order. Instead, think about working with your customer. Your customer may ask you to deliver a particular set of features, and you may feel this is not in the contract. Well, collaborate with them. Or maybe a customer wants an item that was not in the original contract. How about collaborating as opposed to saying, well, it's not in the contract, and right off the bat, you're just thinking about money. That's a poor mindset. Remember I said it's a mindset? There's nothing here that talks about software development, is there? What about responding to change over following a plan? Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they are punched in the mouth. What happens? You're punched in the mouth. You've got to respond to change. You see, this is a way of thinking. We also made a tweak here. So full disclosure, we made a tweak here to say working product, not just software, but any product, any deliverable, product, service, or result. And that is the mindset as far as the Agile Manifesto values are concerned. Now let's go a step further. Now that we've talked about a lot of this, let me once again highlight the brilliant website managed by the Agile Alliance. Go on down to Agile Alliance site 
And you'll be able to find the Agile Manifesto like this with the 12 principles. And right now we are going over the 12 principles. The very first principle states, our highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable product. In other words, deliver continuously. Delight your customer with value. Secondly, welcome changing requirements even late in development. Agile processes harness change for the customer's competitive advantage. You are on the customer's side. You're on the customer's team. If they ask for a change late in the day, you're not going to get mad because you're going to realize this is for our customer's competitive advantage. Number three, deliver working product frequently from a couple of weeks to a couple of months with a preference to a shorter timescale. Why do we want to deliver so frequently? Because it's a risk coping mechanism when you deliver in an iteration of two weeks or less, you are going to get your customer's feedback, which is valuable. And it's going to guide you as to whether you're on the right track. Number four, business people and developers must work together daily throughout the project. Now, Roy and I were training a group of individuals very recently. And one of them said, you know what? I have a problem with number four. I could work, you know, with my customers and business people once a week, but my goodness, daily. (laughs) And we told them, don't worry. We're not talking about working relentlessly every single day without purpose. When you meet, there's purpose. But when we look at agile through a particular lens of one framework, for example, Scrum, we have a business person known as the product owner. And that individual is there to support and help the team and is a mouthpiece for the business. Number five, build projects around motivated individuals. Give them the environment and support they need. Trust them to get the job done. You already read from Jim's article. This is all about, you could call it mushy stuff, but we know that when we give the team what they need, the environment, the support they need, they get stuff done. When you don't give the team the nurturing, support, autonomy that they need, bad things happen. Number six, the most efficient and effective method of conveying information to and within a development team is face-to-face conversation. Face-to-face conversation is great. It's far-reaching, especially when you want to convey empathy, when you want to observe that body language to give you that understanding that the person truly is in the world of the person they're empathizing with. Read a little bit about Professor Emeritus Albert Morabian and his 55387 formula when you are trying to convey topics where there's empathy, where you really want to get the most of the emotional side of the communication, you've got to be thinking about face-to-face. 38% of communication in that respect can be gleaned from the tone of voice. 55, a huge 55, is from body language. And that is one of the reasons why number six holds true. Number seven, working product is the primary measure of progress. Your customers are not keen on, oh, I'm 99.999%. I just have a tiny little bit left and I won't be done for another year. No, work in product. That shows progress. And that's why when we break down our work in iterations, we get a working PSI, we call it, potentially shippable increment that delights the customer. It's not the full thing. It's a tiny little measure, but ultimately you're going to keep delivering value till you get the full thing. Number eight, agile processes promote sustainable development. The sponsors, developers, and users should be able to maintain a constant pace indefinitely. 
Some people, when they read eight, they think the team needs to be flogged and beaten and driven. No, those are all bad ideas. Carrots and sticks, bad. Here, we're talking about reality. You have eight hours in a day. You know that two hours are not spent on the project typically. So be realistic. When you're thinking about the availability, the capacity of the team, you've got to factor in reality. And all we're saying is, if you commit to doing something, make sure you can actually do it without killing the team, without making the team go overboard. And I'm not saying overtime. Sometimes it's not necessary. But when a team is constantly made to, to put in 60 hours a week, you keep driving your team 60 hours, 60 hours, you're going to end up hurting the team. So we want sustainable development, something that's sustainable. Don't say, oh, yeah, we can deliver 100 story points. By killing the team, huh? By pushing them over so there's no work-life balance? No, we don't want that. So we want a constant pace indefinitely, which means we have to base it on reality. We have to base it with the understanding that these are humans. Number nine, continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. In other words, don't cut corners. You will be more agile by ensuring technical excellence And then you will not have technical debt, which causes bad things to happen. Rework, defects, no, we don't want that. So while some people think agile is a rush, 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 they are so wrong. They got it wrong. Agile is to deal with uncertainty, and it is respectful of technical excellence and good design. Number 10, simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done, is essential. Now, this is the most difficult way of stating something simple. In other words, don't do unnecessary work. Keep it simple. Maximize the amount of work not done. But I can understand why it was written like this. There's a difference between maximizing the amount of work done versus maximizing the amount of work not done. And that needs to be a mindset. Be a maximizer of work not done because that is a lean idea. That is lean mindedness. That is cutting out the fat. Number 11, the best architectures, requirements, and designs emerge from self-organizing teams. Teams, when they are left to self-organize as a group of mature individuals, you hired the right people to start with. Wonders are going to happen when you let them have that autonomy. When you put on a servant leader hat and instead of do this, do that, it is how can I help you? This is really espousing leadership. I like a quote from Steve Jobs and I'll paraphrase it. Steve says, Management is making people do what you want them to do or what you think they should do. So it's written, here's the law, do this, do that, do that. That's management. But he said, leadership is making people do what they never even imagined they could do. In other words, they blew their own mind because you acted as a servant leader. You opened the gates for them to have that autonomy, for them to be able to be self-led self-organizing teams, that is the height of leadership, servant leadership. And that's what we espouse in the world of Agile. Number 12, at regular intervals, the team reflects on how to become more effective, then tunes and adjusts its behavior accordingly. We're talking about something called a retrospective. And a retrospective is a safe space where we can look at what we did well, what we didn't do so well, and we can come clean as far as mistakes we made, And be open with the team. And for that reason, we do not document, document, document lessons learned in this particular meeting. Instead, this meeting is for the team to come clean, to be honest, to be open, 
drop their guard and find how to get better. And they take an item or two. And in the next iteration, they decide to improve on that area. And my friends, that is agile thinking. And that's the 12 agile principles. So agile has been said to be a lot of things, but it is not software development. So those of you who are in government, who are in organizations where Agile hasn't been embraced, I want to encourage you to go on down to that website I mentioned. I'm going to try to put links below. Also, if you are in the United Kingdom, go on down to that gov.uk site I talked about. If you're in the US, take a look at the Agile Assessment Guide and begin to see Agile as that, a way of thinking. On the Agile Alliance website, they've got a brilliant, brilliant mechanism here for you to learn Agile and for you to learn some of these definitions. It's done using a subway system arrangement, just like the underground, the London Underground. Just take a look at each one, go through it. It's great practice for those of you who are about to take a professional exam. So let's round up our little discussion today. So far, we've talked about Agile talk about Agile as being primarily a way of thinking. We've taken a look at the Agile manifesto values. We've taken a look at the Agile manifesto principles. And Agile, in closing, is used in so many organizations. The truth is that out of all the organizations the PMI surveyed very recently, a full 71% of organizations reported using Agile approaches for their projects, sometimes, often, or always. I believe that number has grown since 2017. And do you know that out of those organizations that use Agile or approach projects from an Agile perspective, do you know that 70% of those actually use one framework in particular known as Scrum? Very interesting. Now, the numbers for Scrum may be receding because people are becoming more creative and they're blending a lot of methodologies and getting into hybridized project management, mixing different agile, predictive approaches to get the best of both worlds. So my friends, that is it for today. I hope you found this to be helpful. In our next episode, we'll take a journey into discussing that framework that I mentioned, known as Scrum. See you there.